My name is Siegfried Wiesner. I am a professor of law and the director of the graduate program in intercultural human rights at St. Thomas University School of Law in Miami, Florida. I am honored to have the opportunity to deliver a lecture to this important educational project that is being undertaken by the United Nations. The subject of this lecture is the rights and status of indigenous peoples, a novel and I submit a key issue in the international law of the 21st century. The juggernaut of modern society, by its nature and often by design, has acted to extinguish the indigenous voice. Its language, institutions, and rituals have become dominant. Modernity's law, in particular, has imprinted itself on indigenous peoples following the sword of conquest and the ratio of innovation in the Western Hemisphere and beyond. Its domination of indigenous ways of life was in some ways to be expected. Its aggressive use of the earth and its resources, combined with sanctions to punish perceived transgressions. Its focus on getting ahead via technological and social progress, its premium on Cartesian reason and logic, and its emphasis on the individual, ran head-on into and rolled over the often soft, unresisting indigenous concepts of oneness with Mother Earth and Father Sky, their focus on peace and reconciliation, on faith, on leaving nobody behind, on community. Still, the onslaught has not been entirely successful. All the military, economic, materialistic might of the modern world has not succeeded in silencing the indigenous voice. Just like tender water ultimately erodes the hardest of rocks, indigenous cultures, peoples, and their values have persisted. Like many oppressed communities, they have had to adapt, go underground, avoid the open confrontation. Thus, their withdrawal into niches of survival, areas not initially, at least, desired by the more aggressive part of humanity. Thus, religious syncretism, the transformation of their own gods into saints of the dominant faith. Thus, their participation in the dominant economies by way of tourism and the sale of handicraft. Thus, even their enlistment in the armed forces of the conqueror. Paradoxically, modern communication technologies have helped indigenous peoples to come together, sharing their stories across the breadcrumbs of land that the conquerors have left them and asserting their voice. An international movement has united those who have been systematically divided in the past. Domestic and international decisions have resulted in freezing the processes of assimilation and termination of indigenous voices and values, sometimes even in slightly turning back the clock. The Avastini decision of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights of 2001, for example, has held that the traditional lands of indigenous peoples are theirs as a matter of right.
honoring the land rights of indigenous peoples is the first step towards preservation of their culture. The next step is to respect the structures of decision-making within traditional communities, a distant variant of the modern processes of decision-making in communities we proudly call democratic. It is in this context of cultural difference within which indigenous peoples' claims to self-government arise. Unlike the claims of other groups, indigenous peoples' claims are often couched in the verbiage of sovereignty. Vine Deloria Jr., one of the revered leaders of the American Indian resurgence, spoke in terms of, quote, indigenous sovereignty. Even today, U.S. courts use tribal sovereignty as a term of art when they analyze cases involving American Indian tribes or as they prefer to be called nations. Other states around the world also face indigenous people's demands for their space, their existence, both physically and spiritually, their ways of life. It is not the word sovereignty as such that is an issue, but structures to ensure all the values of human dignity for indigenous peoples. One key concept of the international legal order established in the wake of World War II was the principle of self-determination. The legacy of colonial conquest was supposed to be dealt with by offering colonized peoples a UN-supervised process of decolonization through which they could arrive at their preferred solutions to their political status, whether they desired independence integration into the colonizing state, association, or any other status in between. The problem with this mostly and laudably peaceful decolonization process was this. The choice as to the political future of colonized peoples was not given to the individual peoples conquered, but to the inhabitants of territories colonized by European conquerors within the boundaries of the lines of demarcation drawn by the colonizers. Thus, the colonizers, via their constituting the new country's people under the new sovereign control, continued to rule the colonized from their graves. The name of the game is utiposidetis, a Roman legal term that essentially means one should leave the place as one received it. The decolonization of Spanish lands in Latin America set the precedent that was followed in other areas of European conquest, particularly Africa. There, the boundaries were drawn by rulers who often literally used rulers at the Berlin-Congo Conference in 1884. The straight lines drawn there cut right through the heartlands and through the hearts of very distinct linguistic and ethnic groups, creating problems that persist to the present day. Pursuant to the principle of utipositetis, the UN effectuated return of lands, retraced the borders drawn by the conquerors. Even the dissolutions of European countries today did not dare violate utipositetis 
as confirmed by the Badanter Commission, which formulated the conditions for EU recognition of breakaway entities of the former Yugoslavia. This process of decolonization was assumed to be concluded, by and large, in the mid-1970s after the demise of Franco and Salazar, the dictators of the last European colonial powers. The Western Sahara and East Timor controversies were, in a way, just part of the cleanup of this relatively orderly process. Orderly, as the decolonization process was, it did not account for the peoples who were not yet back on the agenda of the state-centered international decision-makers. Quiet but determined, they persisted not just as collections of individuals, but as organic cultures with fervently held beliefs. Indigenous peoples from around the world, numbering about 370 million, scattered in about 70 different nation-states. They live a predominantly subsistence-based, non-urbanized, sometimes nomadic lifestyle. Often they farm or hunt for food for immediate use. They are called the fourth world, and they have become a factor not only in the world's social process, but also in its constitutive process. They have risen like Phoenix from the ashes. Prior to the 1970s, indigenous peoples were not known to textbooks in international law as actors of any significance in the field. If anything, they were viewed as legal units of domestic law, as one arbitral tribunal characterized the Cayuga nation in 1926. Their numbers continually decreased. In the census of 1960, only 523,591 people in the United States identified themselves as American Indian. The Congress policies of assimilation and termination had had significant effect. The 1960s and 1970s, however, were characterized by a revolutionary fervor that fueled a remarkable resurgence of the First Nations that continues today. The American Indian movement militantly protested the treatment of indigenous peoples in the United States. In 1973, they ended up in a memorable 71-day standoff with federal authorities near Wounded Knee in South Dakota, the site of the last major battles between white soldiers and Native Americans, which had resulted in the violent deaths of over 300 Sioux men, women, and children. It evoked the memory of other flashpoints of degradation, physical, and cultural extermination of indigenous peoples. Hernando Pizarro's 1536-37 siege of Cusco, resulting in the killing or maiming of all Indian inhabitants and the raising of this beautiful Inca city. The forced removal from the east coast of the U.S. of the five civilized tribes in the 1830s, the Trail of Tears with its countless deaths, trauma, and misery, and the widespread prohibition of the use of indigenous languages and the practicing of their religion around the globe. The American Indian Movement's international offshoot 
the International Indian Treaty Council was founded in 1974, followed by the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, allowing indigenous leaders to articulate the plight of their peoples on a planetary scale. The fourth world had found its voice and it soon found entrance into the institutions of the first, in particular the United Nations. In 1971, the UN Economic and Social Council appointed Mr. Jose Martinez Cobo to study patterns of discrimination against indigenous peoples. He submitted a landmark report. In 1982, the UN Subcommission on the Prevention of Discrimination and the Protection of Minorities appointed a working group on indigenous populations with a mandate to review pertinent national developments and to draft international standards concerning the rights of indigenous peoples. Under the dedicated leadership of Dr. Erika Irene Daes, its longtime chairperson, the working group provided a venue for indigenous peoples to bring their complaints and suggestions for change to the attention of the world. The working group reviewed these claims and responded in 1993 with a draft declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. In 1995, the Human Rights Commission appointed a new working group with predominantly government participation charged with elaborating a consensus on the draft declaration. As the Human Rights Commission was transformed into the Human Rights Council, one of its very first acts was to approve the draft declaration's final compromise text as submitted by the chairman. Last changes were made over the course of 2007 to primarily accommodate some of the demands of the African states and others which had resulted in the deferral. The final version of the declaration was adopted on September 13, 2007 by a landslide affirmative vote of 144 states in the General Assembly. Four countries, the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, voted against it, while 11, Azerbaijan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Burundi, Colombia, Georgia, Kenya, Nigeria, Russia, Samoa and Ukraine, abstained. The outcome of the declaration process and the changes the global indigenous movement effectuated by consciously engaging the organized international community were nothing short of monumental. One important change was the delegitimization of the conceptual grounding of the conquest in the notion of terra nullius a concept which European powers had used to justify the acquisition of overseas lands by simple conquest, not only disregarding the will of the conquered original inhabitants of the land, but treating them in essence as legally irrelevant, as Aristotelian, quote, natural slaves in the Spanish version of the conquest. The conquerors thoroughly believed in the superiority of European culture as shown by France's promotion of its mission civilisatrice and Spanish attempts to convert the, quote, savages by joint action of military and church. Today, the international community generally accepts that the Terra Nullius concept in the acquisition of inhabited land
is racist, as reflected in paragraph 4 of the preamble of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. General international law discarded terra nullius as a consequence of the 1975 Western Sahara opinion of the International Court of Justice, which considered land agreements between indigenous peoples and states as, quote, derivative roots of title rather than recognizing original title obtained by occupation of terra nullius. In detail, the 2007 UN Declaration is a milestone of indigenous empowerment. It constitutes a minimum standard of achievement to be pursued, but it does not preclude the development of additional rights in the future. The preamble recognizes indigenous people's essential contribution to the diversity and richness of civilization and cultures which constitute the common heritage of mankind. Even though their situation varies from region to region and country to country, indigenous peoples and persons enjoy all human rights and they are free and equal to all others. The essential novelty of this instrument is its recognition of, quote, indispensable collective rights. Indigenous peoples' distinctive demands are those to self-determination, the preservation and the flourishing of their cultures, and the protection of their rights to their lands. As far as the indigenous people's claim to self-determination is concerned, Article 3 of the Declaration recognizes it broadly as the right to, quote, freely determine their political status and freely pursue the economic, social, and cultural development. While Article 4 guarantees their, quote, right to autonomy or self-government in matters relating to their internal and local affairs, as well as ways and means for financing their autonomous functions. Also, in reaction to various states' articulated fears of the specter of secession, Article 46.1 clarifies that, quote, nothing in this declaration may be interpreted as implying for any state, people, group, or person any right to engage in any activity or to perform any act contrary to the Charter of the United Nations or construed as authorizing or encouraging any action which would dismember or impair totally or in part, the territorial integrity or political unity of sovereign and independent states. Indigenous peoples generally do not aspire to statehood in the sense of the political independence of players in the Westphalian system of modern nation states. The claim to indigenous sovereignty is primarily founded upon the aspiration to preserve their inherited ways of life change those traditions as they see necessary and to make their cultures flourish. This fundamental policy of the UN Declaration is reflected in Article 5, which states that, quote, indigenous peoples have the right to maintain and strengthen their distinct 
political, legal, economic, social, and cultural institutions, while retaining their right to participate fully, if they so choose, in the political, economic, social, and cultural life of the state. The goal of effective protection of indigenous culture is key to the understanding of the Declaration. It guarantees indigenous people the right not to be subjected to genocide or to forced assimilation or destruction of their culture. It includes the right to manifest, practice, develop, and teach their spiritual and religious traditions, customs, and ceremonies, the right to maintain and protect manifestations of their cultures, such as archaeological and historical sites and artifacts, the right to restitution <coughs> of spiritual property taken without free and informed consent, including the right to repatriate Indian human remains, and the right to protection of sacred places and burial sites. Indigenous languages, in particular, are vanishing to an alarming degree. As George Steiner wrote in 1975, today entire families of languages survive only in the halting remembrances of aged individual informants or in the limbo of tape recordings. Almost at every moment in time, notably in the sphere of American Indian speech, some ancient and rich expression of articulate being is lapsing into irretrievable silence. The Declaration responds by guaranteeing indigenous peoples' rights to revitalize, use, develop, and transmit to future generations their histories, languages, oral traditions, to be educated in tribal languages, and to control their own educational systems and media. It also affords indigenous peoples the right to maintain and develop their political, economic, and social systems, and to determine and develop priorities and strategies for exercising their right to development. Their treaties with states should be recognized, observed, and enforced. Equally crucial to the effective protection of indigenous peoples' cultures is the safeguarding of their land. Being indigenous literally means to live within one's roots. The collective consciousness of indigenous peoples often expressed in creation stories or similar sacred tales of their origin places them since time immemorial at the location of their physical existence. More importantly, their beliefs make remaining at that place a compelling dictate of faith. Thus, Article 25 emphasizes their, quote, distinctive spiritual relationship with their land. And Article 26 affirms their, quote, rights to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. And their, quote, right to own, use, develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources that they possess by reason of traditional ownership or other traditional occupation or use, as well as those which they have otherwise acquired. It also mandates that, quote, states shall give legal recognition and protection 
to these lands, territories, and resources. Such recognition shall be conducted with due respect to the customs, traditions, and land tenure systems of the indigenous peoples concerned. Related key guarantees include indigenous peoples' rights to participate in decision-making in matters which would affect their rights and states' obligations to, quote, consult and cooperate in good faith with indigenous peoples concerned to obtain their, quote, free, prior, and informed consent to legislative and administrative decisions that, quote, may affect them. There are also rights to the improvement of their social and economic conditions, rights to development and international cooperation, treaty rights, as well as certain rights to redress and reparations. Substantive limits to indigenous peoples' autonomy, where stated, are formulated in terms of universal standards of human rights. According to Article 46.3, an interpretative framework of the Declaration not a substantive limit to its rights, are the, quote, principles of justice, democracy, respect for human rights, equality, non-discrimination, good governance, and good faith. One issue that particularly African states raised in their original criticism of the Declaration was that indigenous peoples are nowhere defined in this Declaration. Many scholars have justified this absence of delimitation of the concept with a need to avoid essentialism, that is, to avoid packaging the diversity of indigenous peoples into a straitjacket of objective criteria incongruent with a variety of the people's traditions and aspirations in real life. Despite the dangers of such approach, one might argue that the identity of the legitimate holder of a right must be discernible for a court or other decision-maker to adjudicate a claim based on that right. After all, the essentialism critique cannot reasonably be used to prevent the identification of members of racial or ethnic groups protected by the Equal Protection Clause or pertinent international conventions. Mindful of the pitfalls of oversimplification, the following definition of indigenous peoples could address the major issues. Indigenous communities are best conceived of as peoples traditionally regarded and self-defined as descendants of the original inhabitants of lands with which they share a strong, often spiritual bond. These peoples are and desire to be culturally, socially, and or economically distinct from the dominant groups in society, at the hands of which they have suffered, in past or present, a pervasive pattern of subjugation, marginalization, dispossession, exclusion, and discrimination. This mixed objective-subjective definition would allow the classification of certain groups as indigenous, even though they have not been singled out as victims of European colonial conquest. Such communities might include the Kangsan, the Twa, the Pygmies, and the Maasai. These peoples 
remain at the margins of society, maintaining subsistence economies, and sharing a strong spiritual bond with their land. The African states finally decided to drop their insistence on a definition of indigenous peoples. They did so in exchange for a clarification in the preamble of the declaration, which now reads, recognizing that the situation of indigenous peoples varies from region to region and from country to country, and that the significance of national and regional particularities and various historical and cultural backgrounds should be taken into consideration. This formulation allows for flexibility in the interpretation of the text, but takes away some of the clarity of legal obligation. The United States has stated that the Declaration's failure to define the phrase indigenous peoples is, quote, debilitating to the effective application and implementation of the Declaration. The U.S. representative explained, quote, this obvious shortcoming will subject application of the Declaration to endless debate, especially if entities not properly entitled to such status seek to enjoy the special benefits and rights contained in the Declaration. The most interesting aspect of the U.S. argument is, however, the implicit recognition that indigenous peoples do have a, quote, status that they enjoy, quote, special benefits and rights contained in the Declaration. This is in some tension with the U.S. position that the Declaration should be seen solely as an, quote, aspirational declaration with political and moral rather than legal force. The language of, quote, rights and, quote, status is the language of legal obligation. By participating in this process and related processes of standard setting for several years while expressing concern for special international rights of indigenous peoples, the four states in opposition to the Declaration may be argued to have demonstrated an opinion juries a willingness to be bound if all the provisions of the Declaration ultimately were formulated to agree with their detailed policy preferences. Thus, to the extent that the Declaration reflects pre-existing customer international law or engenders future such law, it is binding on states that do not qualify as persistent objectors. In United Nations practice, a Declaration is a, quote, formal and solemn instrument, resorted to, quote, only in very rare cases relating to matters of major and lasting importance where maximum compliance is expected. Using that particular instrument creates, quote, a strong expectation that members of the international community will abide by it and, quote, consequently, insofar as the expectation is gradually justified by state practice, a declaration may by custom become recognized as laying down rules binding upon states. The UN Declaration is thus a solemn, comprehensive and authoritative response of the international community of states to the claims of indigenous peoples with which maximum compliance is expected. Some of the rights stated therein may already form part 
of customer international law, others may become the fonset origo of later emerging customary international law. Scholarly analysis of state practice and opinion juries have concluded that indigenous peoples are entitled to maintain and develop their distinct cultural identity, their spirituality, their language, and their traditional ways of life, that they hold the right to political, economic, and social self-determination, including a wide range of autonomy, and that they have the right to the lands they have traditionally owned or otherwise occupied and used. As Professor James Anaya, UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms of Indigenous People, has stated, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples constitutes, quote, an authoritative common understanding at the global level of the minimum content of the rights of Indigenous Peoples upon a foundation of various sources of international human rights law. The principles and rights affirmed in the Declaration constitute or add to the normative frameworks for the activities of United Nations human rights institutions, mechanisms, and specialized agencies as they relate to indigenous peoples. As he uses the Declaration as a measure to evaluate state conduct, so will the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights in its annual report on the rights of indigenous peoples, the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which is focusing on the Declaration's implementation, and the Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The standards of the Declaration are also being mainstreamed into the United Nations, the ILOs, and UNESCO's policies and programs. The Declaration has also already formed the basis for legislation in individual countries, such as the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act in the Philippines, and it has inspired constitutional and statutory reforms in various states of Latin America. It was incorporated wholesale into Bolivian domestic law in November 2007. In addition to the declaration, another key concept of international law affected by the resurgence of indigenous communities is the notion of individual human rights rooted in the dignity of each person. The concept of individual human rights led to the recognition of individual rights against the state prescribed and enforced internationally through universal and regional treaty arrangements and the UN Charter. This assortment of rights spearheaded by the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights did not, like the original French Déclaration des droits de l'homme et du citoyen, contain group rights. Even Article 27 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, often deemed to confer a universal group right, in fact only grants individual members of a minority the right to celebrate their culture. Still, the Human Rights Committee, in its general comment on this provision, offered a broad interpretation of cultural integrity in the context of indigenous peoples, including rights to lands and resources. Indigenous people are also the object of special attention under the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Most of its early warning, urgent action procedures relate to indigenous communities. The Convention on the Rights of the Child expressly protects indigenous children's rights to their cultures, religions, and languages. 
The struggle of indigenous peoples also led to a treaty that recognized the rights of groups, particularly with respect to resources, as formulated in the 1989 International Labour Organization's Convention Number no. 169, which has now been ratified by virtually all of the Latin American countries with significant indigenous populations. The convention has as its basic theme the right of indigenous people to live and develop as distinct communities by their own designs. It ensures indigenous people's control over their legal status, lands, internal structures, and environmental security, and it guarantees indigenous people's rights to ownership and possession of the total environment they occupy or use. Early on, also the World Bank mandated the active participation, wherever possible, of indigenous peoples in the development of projects that affect them and the prevention or mitigation of adverse effects. Article 8J of the Biodiversity Convention and its processes protect indigenous traditional knowledge. UNESCO's pertinent instruments include the 2001 Declaration on Cultural Diversity and the 2003 Convention for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage. In addition, global comparative research on state practice and opinion juris over a period of five years in the late 1990s reached certain conclusions about the content of newly formed customer international law regarding the rights and status of indigenous peoples. The worldwide indigenous renaissance has led to significant changes in constitutions, statutes, regulations, case law, and other authoritative and controlling statements and practices of states that had substantial indigenous populations. These changes included the recognition of indigenous people's rights to preserve their distinct identity and dignity and to govern their own affairs. This move toward recognition of indigenous self-government was accompanied by an affirmation of native communities' title to the territories they traditionally used or occupied. In many countries, domestic law now mandates a practice that would have been unthinkable only a few years ago. The demarcation and registration of First Nations titled to the lands of their ancestors. Indigenous people achieved this dramatic victory through several means. A peace treaty in Guatemala, constitutional and statutory changes in countries such as Brazil, as applied in the 2009 case of Raposa Sara do Sol, and modifications of the common law in Australia and other states. Indigenous culture, language, and tradition, to the extent they have survived, are increasingly inculcated and celebrated. Treaties of the distant past are being honored, and agreements are fast becoming the preferred mode of interaction between indigenous communities and the descendants of the former conquering elites. On the basis of this very widespread state practice and opinion juris regarding the legal treatment of indigenous peoples, I concluded in 1999, first, indigenous peoples are entitled to maintain and develop their distinct cultural identity, their spirituality, their language, and their traditional ways of life. Second, they hold the right to political, economic, and social self-determination, including a wide range of autonomy 
and the maintenance and strengthening of their own systems of justice. Third, indigenous peoples have a right to demarcation, development, control and use of the lands they have traditionally owned or otherwise occupied and used. Fourth, governments are to honor and faithfully observe their treaty commitments to indigenous nations. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights referred to this study and the opinions of other international legal scholars as it submitted the case of an indigenous group in the rainforest of Nicaragua to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The tribunal, in its celebrated Avastigny judgment of August 31, 2001, affirmed the existence of an indigenous people's communal right to its land under Article 21 the right to property of the American Convention on Human Rights. It argued, among indigenous peoples, there is a communitarian tradition regarding a communal form of collective property of the land, in the sense that ownership of the land is not centered on an individual, but rather on the group and its community. Indigenous groups, by the fact of their very existence, have the right to live freely in their own territory. The close ties of indigenous people with the land must be recognized and understood as the fundamental basis of their cultures, their spiritual life, their integrity, and their economic survival. For indigenous communities, relations to the land are not merely a matter of possession and production, but a material and spiritual element which they must fully enjoy, even to preserve their cultural legacy and transmit it to future generations. Other decisions in the same vein followed, including cases involving Suriname and Paraguay. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights continued its pertinent jurisprudence in a broad variety of contexts. Most recently, the Belize Supreme Court also recognized the customary international legal character of an indigenous people's right to its land. The range of self-government guaranteed by the Declaration, remains somewhat unclear. This indeterminacy is probably a good thing, given the diversity of indigenous peoples' lives, traditions, and aspirations. The US legal system, for example, has created a complex web of federal Indian law around the notion of American Indian tribal sovereignty. Many other countries recognize various aspects of self-government of their indigenous peoples, such as the making of rules and their enforcement through tribal courts or similar bodies of dispute resolution. The patterns of positive domestic law regarding indigenous self-government are quite diverse, ranging from the quasi-provincial authority of the Canadian territory of Nunavut to the parliaments of the Sami to the local powers of the resguardos in Colombia and many forms in between. Because the structure and content of power relations regarding self-government of indigenous peoples vary, it would behoove scholars and decision makers to look for responses to the claims raised by the affected peoples themselves. In other words, to achieve a global order of human dignity responding to human needs and aspirations, the quest should be redirected from the cataloging of states' grants of power or tolerance of indigenous peoples' authorities toward looking instead for the proper starting point, the authentic claims and aspirations of indigenous peoples. 
This approach would lead to a framework of laws more narrowly tailored to the inner worlds of indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples may have a concept of sovereignty quite different from the predominantly Western ideas of self-government. As law, in essence, ought to serve human beings, any effort to design a better law should be conceived as a response to human needs and aspirations. Those things humans value vary from culture to culture and they change over time. From the need to make sense of one's individual and cultural experiences arise inner world or each person's inner reality. The international human rights system as Professor Michael Reisman sees it, is concerned with protecting, for those who wish to maintain them, the integrity of these unique visions of their inner worlds from appraisal and policing in terms of the cultural values of others. This must be for these inner world cosmovisions or introcosms are the central vital part of the individuality of each of us. This is, to borrow Holmes' wonderful phrase, where we live. Respect for the other requires, above all, respect for the other's inner world. He concluded that political and economic self-determination in this context are important, but it is the integrity of the inner worlds of peoples their rectitude systems or their sense of spirituality that is their distinctive humanity without an opportunity to determine, sustain and develop that integrity their humanity and ours is denied. Similarly, the late Vine Deloria Jr., revered leader of the U.S. Indigenous Revival, stated that indigenous sovereignty quote, consists more of a continued cultural integrity than of political powers and to the degree that a nation loses its sense of cultural identity, to that degree it suffers a loss of sovereignty. Sovereignty, explains another great Native American leader, Kirk Kickingbird, cannot be separated from people or their culture. In this vein, Tayayake Alfred appeals for a process of de-thinking sovereignty. He states, Sovereignty is a social creation. The reification of sovereignty in politics today is the result of a triumph of a particular set of ideas over others, no more natural to the world than any other man-made object. Indigenous perspectives offer alternatives beginning with the restoration of a regime of respect. This ideal contrasts with a status solution still rooted in a classical notion of sovereignty that mandates a distributive rearrangement, but with a basic maintenance of the superior posture of the state. True indigenous formulations are non-intrusive and build frameworks of respectful coexistence by acknowledging the integrity and autonomy of the various constituent elements of the relationship. He calls for a physical and spiritual self-renewal of indigenous communities, a radical indigenous resurgence.
Self-help and re-empowerment are thus key to the survival and the flourishing of indigenous communities. These gains cannot be achieved, however, if indigenous peoples and their cultures are crushed by the constant onslaught of modern society's influences. While it is impossible and undesirable to imprison indigenous peoples in a living museum of their culture, the world community at large ought to support their choice to live according to the codes of their inner world. What would an appropriate legal framework for the flourishing of indigenous identity be? <coughs> First, safe spaces need to be assured. The Western concept of exclusive property should be used to legally shield the land indigenous peoples have traditionally held. No one has ever explained this need for connection with the land as eloquently as the coordinator of the Indian Nations Union in the Amazon. When the government took our land, they wanted to give us another place. But the state, the government, will never understand that we do not have another place to go. The only possible place for our people to live and to re-establish our existence, to speak to our gods, to speak to our nature, to weave our lives, is where God created us. We are not idiots to believe that there is possibility of life for us outside of where the origin of our life is. Respect our place of living. Do not degrade our living conditions. Respect this life. The only thing we have is the right to cry for our dignity and the need to live in our land. Land rights are thus critical to indigenous people's survival and significant progress has been reached in international law regarding this claim. Second, within these lands, indigenous peoples should have the right to order their lives the way their traditions teach them. Local and internal self-government or autonomy as recognized in Article 4 of the UN Declaration is essential. To assuage the fears of existing states, secession or other threats to the territorial integrity of a state should generally be disallowed. An exception as stated by the Canadian Supreme Court in its advisory opinion on the secession of Quebec would apply as with any other ethnic group if an indigenous people were excluded from the political processes and suffered from wholesale discrimination. The effort of circumscribing the exact scope and limits of indigenous autonomy will often necessitate profound constitutional reform, an exercise, as Eric Haddad has formulated, of, quote, belated state building. The third important claim which ought to be heeded is the indigenous people's cry for free, prior and informed consent before the government takes any measure affecting them. That includes relocation and other displacement as well as significant impairment of their distinct heritage. The term indigenous heritage should be broadly construed and subject to the same standards and means of protection as traditional intellectual property rights. Fourth, the right to self-government ought to be granted with the express dedication to the survival of their culture, their cosmovision, 
and their respect for the earth, including all living and non-living things. The fact that for some groups religion is the law should be respected. While certain indigenous codes of criminal law may be restorative rather than retributive, those should be upheld as well. As long as the indigenous group meets the definition's objective criteria, it should be entitled to make determinations regarding its membership. Indigenous sovereigns, as any government, should, however, be bound by the minimum threshold of universal standards of human rights. Fifth, indigenous peoples have already attained some measure of international legal agency through their equal representation on the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. The treaties concluded with them in the past should be honored and disputes regarding their validity, breach or interpretation should be resolved ideally by appropriate international bodies. Sixth, affirmative steps should be taken to more effectively protect, promote and revitalize indigenous languages and manifestations of culture. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples should be implemented by all states and mainstreamed and operationalized in all intergovernmental organizations and programs. This array of measures would serve to maintain indigenous sovereignty in the sense indigenous peoples themselves define it. These measures may be less threatening than traditional autonomy models suggest and they may prove to contribute collectively to the survival of the planet as a site of cultural diversity and mutual respect. Still, indigenous and non-indigenous forces need to combine in order to realize all of these aspirations. Many interests may stand in the way of these goals and some of them may have to be accommodated. In any event, struggle is essential to life, especially the life of the law, and this is a battle worth fighting. In conclusion, the 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is based on the universal recognition of their claim to self-determination on their lands an aspiration that lies at the heart of the rising indigenous peoples' claims to re-empowerment. In important respects, particularly regarding their rights to their territories, their culture and internal self-government, the Declaration reaffirms pre-existing rules of customer international law and treaty law. The right to recapture their identity to reinvigorate their ways of life, to reconnect with the earth, to regain their traditional lands, to protect their heritage, to revitalize their languages, to manifest their culture. All of these rights are as important to indigenous people as the right to make final decisions in their internal, political, judicial, and economic settings. The flame of self-determination, however, needs to burn from inside the indigenous community itself. International and domestic law can and should stand ready to kindle, protect, 
and grow this flame until it burns fiercely, illuminating the path for the ultimate goal of self-realization of indigenous peoples around the world. Thank you for your attention.